All right, well, this morning uh, we are going to continue our study through the book of Ephesians. And um, last week we, sa- we saw uh, as, as the Lord is, is defining the family and uh, the authority in the family, now we're going to pick up with another set of relationships. So, fellows, if you'd pass out the scriptures for those who may have forgotten theirs or if someone doesn't have a Bible, they can get one. Just raise your hand, they'll hand it to you. You're going to need it. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, open up to that. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick up uh, where we left off, which is going to be chapter 6, verse 1. And actually this morning, because of the passage, I've got uh, two young folks from our uh, high school youth group. They're going to be sharing their testimonies uh, at the end of the service prior to communion. And uh, Pastor Dave's going to lead us through communion because I'm going to head over the hill to Malibu uh, to celebrate Brian Laspada uh, being the pastor there. But I'm going to be back for second service. So Pastor Dave's going to run communion. But I'll, I'll, I'll be with you up until the testimonies, and then I'm out of here. So if you have to talk to me, too bad. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. While you have your Bibles open, just I'll, I'll, I'll read it. You don't have to turn there, but it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 that reads very similar to Ephesians 6. It says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Exodus twenty twelve, which was quoted in Ephesians 6, it's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. And so those will be our passages. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the study of his word. Lord, we do ask your blessing. Holy Spirit, you promised to lead us into all truth. And so we know you to be the forgotten person of the Trinity, but we're so dependent upon you. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd open the eyes of our heart, that we would receive all you'd have for us. And Lord, let nothing come from my lips that wouldn't be a blessing to you and honor your word. And if so, Lord, just strike it from the memory of all who are present. Lord, a fallible man teaching an infallible word. And so, Lord, let me not make a mess of it. And I I ask your blessing upon the study of your word. Bless your people now. Strengthen families for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a seat. Take a load off. Last week, we were taking a look. uh, Actually, even the week before, we began by looking at Ephesians 5.21, which is the key verse to understand what the Lord is doing uh, in, in this aligning of the family. In the very first verse that we studied, Ephesians 5.21, real simply put, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. And we learned that in the chaos of humanity, in, in the warring of humanity, as we see in James, where do wars come from? Not getting what you want. And so we have battles, and they rage. And there's never been a greater battle than the battle of the sexes. It's raged for thousands of years. Man and woman, woman and man, and, uh, and as we see this, the Lord looks at each relationship in life, whether it be a husband and a wife, whether it be children and parents, whether it be employer employees, he sees the conflict that comes with, with human nature because our desire is to want to achieve. Our desire is to want to uh, um, have self-expression, self-identity. And with that, people get in the way of what we want to accomplish in our own life. And so we have conflict and, and we, we butt heads. And the Lord says, the way to find solution to all of the conflicts in life is found in Ephesians 5.21, where you submit to one another in the fear of God, which is real simply put, in every relationship in life, every relationship in life, there's a third party. 
There's a third party that takes precedent over everything else that you're dealing with. Whether it be a husband and wife, there's a third party. That's the Lord. When it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is that third party present. It's the Lord. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And so with every relationship, with every relationship, there's a third party present. It's not what do I want, it's what does Christ want. And when we take a look at these relationships and we understand this third party present, which is the Lord, all of a sudden our understanding to yield to what God wants to do to establish the family he designed in the book of Genesis is how every culture is established by the strength of the family. And so when we look at these passages of Scripture, last week when we saw wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, I I heard uh, somebody say that I only preached half a sermon because I didn't elaborate on the idea of what does a wife do when she lives with an abusive husband. Real simple, leave. Leave. You know, and and what I would say is uh, get out. If you're in danger, get out. And, and wait upon the Lord. And, and you know, there's legal separation. And, and wait, as the Bible says, until your husband bears fruit in accordance with repentance. I remember Sharon Reese and, and Raul Reese, a pastor at uh, Calvary Chapel Golden Springs. He was abusive. He was awful. He was an evil man. And uh, he, was, he was physically abusive to Sharon Reese. And she had packed her bags, and, and uh, he came home and found the bags there. He, he, she was away with the boys. He saw the bags. He loaded the gun. He was going to kill him. As he sat down and paced like a wild animal in his room, he started watching a, a show, and, and it was uh, Chuck Smith, and he was doing an altar call at, a, at an event, and he gave his heart to the Lord. And Sharon came home, saw that, that Raul was there, ran without her bags. He came running out saying, I've given my heart to the Lord. It's all, and she didn't believe it and took off. And it took a while before Raul Reese began to bear fruit in accordance with repentance before Sharon would move back in. She was a parent of missionary family, and, or excuse me, a child of missionary parents, and um, waited upon the Lord. And sure enough, over time, God restored that. I'm not going to say that happens in every marriage. But I would say, what does God want? He's the third party present in all of this. But if it's abusive, get out. Get out. And if he doesn't bear fruit in accordance with repentance, and, and you know, the Bible says abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse is grounds for divorce, uh, that's between you and the Lord. Pursue it. But I would in no case say put yourself in danger. But I would ask you this. What's the Lord telling you to do? Wait upon the Lord. Seek wise counsel. Get out of danger. And, uh, and, and in no way when it says wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, in no way will you ever be required by God to do anything immoral or illegal. So I hope that that's the other half of the sermon that you thought maybe I'd skipped. I, I thought I made it clear last week, but there you go. But I will say this, when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, the picture is that he's the one who sets the agenda. He's the one who sets the direction. He's the one that it's the vision for the family and where the family's going to go. Leadership, fellowship. A leader isn't any greater than his followers, and a follower isn't any greater than, his, than the leader. And so the picture is how God has established it. And as it goes further, it says, husbands, well, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This idea that Christ loved us unto death. And the picture is that we're submitting to one another in the fear of God. A weak man is a man who would say to his wife, wife, submit. The idea is that you love them into, into submission, as Christ has done for us. Men, how has the Lord treated you in your life? Has he ever said to you, submit? Has he ever browbeat you? Has he ever demanded anything of you? No. I mean, I would just simply say that the way that the Lord has treated you is the way you treat your wife. Patient, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. The Lord served you. I mean, is a diaper too tough to change when the Lord could hang on a cross for you? 
Why is it that your wife carries the babies all the time? Why is your wife the one who's always feeding, cleaning the house? Get home. You want to know something sexy? You want to turn your wife on? Do the dishes. You know, fold the laundry. Uh, learn how to, how to fold a fitted sheet. Get with it. <laughs> how many men know how to fold a fitted sheet? There we go. Huh? Hey, God bless you, Doug. All right. But the passage goes on further in verse 30. It says, for we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Because the Bible says the two shall become one flesh. We are united with Christ. We want what he wants. We want his heart. Our hope is that our husbands, ladies, would be the ones that would be seeking after the Lord's heart as King David, a man after God's own heart. Sometimes they aren't. But just like Sarah, as we learned that even when he made the mistake to go down to Egypt, she didn't whine and complain on the way back to Bethel going, you, you spineless coward, telling Pharaoh that I was your sister, you loser, you pathetic wimp. You, she didn't do that. It says in Peter that she had a quiet and gentle spirit, which was precious in the sight of the Lord. I recall back years ago when, uh, when I was going through a struggle in my life and, and hiding it and just, you know, keeping it a secret. And it was awful. And I was outside the will of the Lord, and I remember finally just the conviction overwhelmed me. And i got to tell you, my wife learned, and and it's always been this way in our marriage. I've never known my wife to nag. She realizes as the Holy Spirit is way better at bringing conviction than she would ever be by nagging. And and she, I finally came to her and I said, honey, I just want to tell you something. This is what I've been struggling with. This is where I've been hiding it. And you know what she said to me? I've known. I knew it all along. I went, what? Yeah, it's right up there underneath the... Serious? You knew? Yeah. Why didn't you say anything? I figured the Lord would tell you. I got to tell you, that blew my mind. Now, she had ridden me like a rented mule and, you know, told me I was worthless and why do you do this and blah, blah. You know, I... I, Men are pig-headed. I got to tell you, when you go to prayer and you, you put your husband before the Lord in prayer, God has a way of taking us to the woodshed. It's awful. And I got pummeled. And the conviction was so great that the transformation was powerful. And that was the wisdom that the Lord gave my wife. And the picture that I see in verse 31, it says, for this reason, and pay attention, for this reason, for this reason, that that we, we see that we're members of his body. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and start a whole new family. And this is that idea that we're unified with another human being to say, I give you my life. You see, we we studied early on agape love, and we see the three types of love that the Greeks looked at in the scriptures, eros, uh, agape, and phileo. We understand that agape is a selfless love. No matter what you do, I love you. And that's how Christ loved us. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us while we were sinners. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice. And he didn't die on the cross going, you know what? I'm bleeding, wheezing, and dying on this cross so that mankind can look at me and spit upon me and say, I I, I appreciate the fact you died for me, but I don't want anything to do with you. No, the Lord gave agape love that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, that we would respond by saying, God, you love me that much? I want to love you the same. I give you my life. And then with that understanding of what the Lord's done for us, as he's forgiven us a multitude of sins, the Bible says it's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. Love covers a multitude of sins. As God has forgiven you, so forgive one another. And we enter into this this family, this marriage relationship, first understanding what it means to be unified and united with Christ, and then looking at that person that God's called us to. Our head has been turned, we, we find them attractive, then we start to talk with them, we start to spend time, we become knitted, and all of a sudden God's calling us to serve this person for, for life. 
And so we turn to that person. The husband says, I, I, I want to marry you. I want to give you my life. And the wife responds by saying, get lost. You've been pursuing me as a stalker. I, no, no, that's what, no, I, I'm sorry. That, no, no, the, the wife says, the, the woman says to the man, I, I want to give you my life. And then as we lay down our life, we, 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 the Bible says we, we obtain a whole new life. Now, let me just tell you a quick way to living alone and being miserable. Make it all about you. See, if your whole purpose in life is to obtain self-fulfillment, self-understanding, the Lord has made it such that you'll never be able to do that pursuing your own interests. The Bible says if a man tries to gain his life, he'll lose it. You'll never achieve that fulfillment by trying to obtain your life and maintain your life. He says only if a man loses his life will he then gain it. And the only way that you can find fulfillment is to seek that fulfillment for somebody else and serve them. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. And so the Lord lays that out. How, how do we do that in a family? And he's laid it out. This is what a man needs. This is what a wife needs. And so all these things are laid out that the two would become one flesh. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as, him, as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's often been said that, that uh, if a man is given two choices, uh, whether to live the rest of his life never being loved but respected or to live the rest of his life being, um, uh, what did I say first, being loved but not respected, and the second one is to be respected but not loved, the man would choose to be respected over being loved. The reverse is true, many say, for a woman, that she would desire to be loved. And so in this picture, this is how God's wired us. This is the way it's meant to be. And so God lays this out and he says each of these roles is obtained by realizing that there's a third party present in every relationship in life. And now he comes to this third category. Now remember, in our refreshing of of looking at uh, previous studies, remember too, this is Ephesus. This is a city that was inundated with uh, the temple of, of Artemis, Aphrodite. A thousand temple prostitutes would come down from this temple every evening and ply their trade. It was a port city. It was also a trade route. Every woman in the city two times a year was required to offer her services as a prostitute for this temple. So every family was affected by sexual immorality. Every family probably experienced incest. There was all kinds of, of, a, of a mess. And this little diminutive rabbi comes in and he begins to preach the gospel and restore this community. And Ephesus would become the hotbed of revival throughout all of the realm. And, and, and it happened because the Lord designed and, and directed, especially through this epistle, as Paul spent three and a half years with this church in Ephesus, how to redefine and establish the family. If they need it in Ephesus, we sure need it today. Can I get a hearty amen on that? And so as we come into this passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, it begins with another member of the family, children, children, children. And I, I wrote down this word for children. It's technon from the Greek. A child as produced, offspring, daughter, son, no bearing on age. It has no bearing on age, even adult children, which is kind of interesting because that means everyone in the room should be listening to this message because you qualify. Yes? Or was anyone conceived in a test tube? Okay, didn't think so. And so when the passage says that we are to, uh, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. The word obey is real simple, to hear or to be under, a subordinate, to listen attentively, by implication to heed or to conform to a command or authority, hearken, be obedient, to obey. It's the same word that's used when a a drill sergeant says to to a recruit, this is what you do, and you do it. When he says jump, you say how high. It's a command that's to be honored. 
obey. If they say do it, you do it. And what do you, what, how do you obey? Well, we find in, in Colossians, children obey your parents in all things. Just like it says, wives submit to your husbands in everything. And, and children obey your parents in all things. And we would like that, that, the, that as God is our father, that we would like that he would declare to us that we would obey him in all things. Yes, we find that we don't. But when it says to us as children that we're to obey our parents in the Lord, it, it goes on further to say, for this is right. This is right. And it pertains to the fifth commandment that we find in Exodus 20. It's the fifth commandment. As we know, when you look at the stations of the cross, you have the vertical and you, you have the horizontal and you have the vertical stations of the cross. And in the vertical stations of the cross, it's the first five commandments. It's our relationship with us and God. You'll have no other gods before me, says the Lord. And so those are all of our relationships. But it's interesting that the fifth commandment not only applies to our relationship with the Lord, but in a sense, it almost could relate to having six commandments with our relationship to each other. But here we find the fifth commandment to be our relationship to God because it pertains to that third person in every relationship, that third party present. And when it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, he is our father. And it says in in John chapter one, that if we believe in the Lord, he's given us that privilege to be children of God. And so when we see this passage says, children, obey your parents in the Lord is right. He quotes this commandment out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother, honor your father and mother. The passage in Exodus 20, 12 says that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. But Paul kind of gives a reader's digest summation of it. He says that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. How is it that you live long by obeying your parents? It's real simple. People like to be around you. You get preference in jobs because you're somebody that, you can, that they can count on. They know that if they give you a job, you're going to do it because you've learned under your parents how to do things right. And if you can honor your mother and father who are earthly and fallen and have issues in life, you're not going to have a problem with your employer. We find in Romans 13 that God appoints all positions of authority. All. And those positions that are appointed are for our benefit. So whoever you're under, God's placed them over your life. Some of you may have a Saul in your life just like David did. And when David was in the cave and all of his men were saying, kill Saul so that you can you know, move on, he's the guy who's making your life miserable. David couldn't do it. He cut off the corner of Saul's robe and his men were like, what's your problem, David? He said, who am I to touch a hand on the Lord's anointed? God's placed him in authority over my life, even if he is chasing me through the deserts. And God did an amazing work in David's life. I can imagine when David was in the palace and Jonathan said to him, my dad's you know, really upset and he wants to kill you. You go out and hide behind the rock and if it's safe for you to come back, I'll shoot the arrow in front of you. But if you've got to run for your life, I'm going to shoot the arrow over you. And you can imagine David hiding behind that rock going, oh, I pray that that arrow lands in front of me. It's the palace. They've got luscious food and wonderful things, my clothing. I, I got all my toys in there. And he watches the arrow, shunk, and his heart broke as it went over his head. And off he went into the desert to be hunted like a rat. But in that process, God developed the next king of Israel. And I would just simply say to you parents, There are going to be times in your life where God wants to take your children to a place that you don't want to take them. As parents, we want to protect our children from trial. We want to protect our children from pain. We want to protect them from heartache, just like David's men did in the cave. But I got news for you. There's going to be a season in the life of your child where God wants to take them through a trial. And he doesn't want you to protect them. He's going to let the arrow go over their head. They're going to leave the palace. Let them go. They're in the hands of the Lord. If you've done your parenting correctly, they're going to be seeking the Lord while they're away. 
See, as a parent, it's not so that you have your boot on their neck. You've got to raise them up so that when they're out of your presence, they'll know what to do. Even a drill sergeant knows that. I'm not going to be with you forever. You're going to be in combat on your own. You're going to need to know what to do. That's when they become adults. And someday that arrow is going to go over their head. Someday they're going to be in a cave and they're going to realize, and this is what I would even say to all of us as children, be careful of the counsel you receive from those who love you the most when God's taking you through the deepest trial of your life. Because those who love you the most are going to try to help you avoid the pain. They're going to try to help you avoid the trial. And God wants to take you right through it. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. God does that. And he knows what he's doing. And he's a far better parent than you and I will ever be. Can I get an amen on that? Trust him. Trust him. But the picture is you'll live long on the earth, children. You'll live long on the earth because you're going to be a good employee. And ultimately, you'll be a good employer because you'll know how to parent well and you'll know how to to serve well. You'll know how to honor people. You'll know how to take care of them. If you can honor your mother and father, you'll know how to honor others who are in positions of authority. You'll know how to listen. You'll know how to glean wisdom. Proverbs 1.8 says, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Proverbs 23.22 says, Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. I think of these things and it blows me away, especially Proverbs 18, 12. It says, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty and before honor is humility. You will never be honored in life. You'll never be elevated in life until you can come to a place where you humble yourself and, and, and come to honor authority. When you honor authority, you'll be honored. But if you never learn to do that, you never will be honored. I love Leviticus 9, 32. And to the best of my ability, I attempt it every time Marty walks into my office. I've been pretty good about it. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of the old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. Whenever my father steps into my presence, I rise. God's taught me that. I didn't know it when I was growing up, but the Lord taught me that. You'll live long on the earth because when you honor, you'll be honored. In honoring, you understand humility. And in humility, God will lift you up. Don't lift yourself up. Don't, Don't demand to be in the front. Let God bring you forward. And all these things, God teaches you through your parents. And listen, you don't get to pick the parents you get in this world. A lot of us got gypped, amen? (laughs) Good, I liked it. It wasn't very loud. A lot of us got gypped. But you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be. And you learn from the mistakes of your parents to to do what they never did for you. And not to do some of the things that they did that you know weren't right. And you honor them. And in honoring them and in being patient, and, and there's something that happens in the midst of it. It's just like your mother that's dealing with your dad. When she's coming to this place of submission and she's taking the role of Christ in the relationship, that Christ, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant unto death, even death on a cross. And she's reflecting that nature of Christ in the home, and you're watching her. You're learning from her. And I would just say to you mothers, as you're rolling your eyes when your husband makes a, 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 a comment it's not good. It's not good. It's like looking at a child and, and saying, sit down. And the child says, I will not sit down. Sit down. I will not sit down. You grab that child. You physically put them in the chair and they look at you with defiance and they say, I may be sitting, but I am standing up inside. <laughs> That's not submission. That's not honoring the Lord. E- externally, you may be doing one thing, but internally you aren't. It's, a, it's, it's the issue of the heart. 
The heart of every issue is the issue of the heart. And so when we see this picture of obeying your parents in the Lord, this is your desire to serve God, and this is what your calling is. And the beautiful thing about it, and I love this being an assistant pastor in a church, I always wanted to be the senior pastor until I became the senior pastor. I want to be an assistant again. And the reason why is it it gets a little old after a while when the buck always stops with you. I've told you my dream job is to collect shopping carts at Target. There's no issues. There's no people. It's just carts. Stack them, put them back in. They take them back out. You go stack them, bring them back in. That's all there is to it. But in the ministry, ministry would be great if it wasn't for people, right? And all the demands and the struggles and the needs and the wants and all those things and, it's, and, and, and trying to minister to the variety of different needs. And it's, there's a lot. There's a lot. And so when you look at this thing and you want to be in that position of authority and you really want to strive for that position of authority, God is teaching you to give you freedom to just relax. You'll get it soon enough. You know, I started to realize as, as an assistant pastor, I have one job. I had one job and it was really cool. I had one job. Whatever the pastor wanted me to do, I did. And you know what? There, were, there was one time when I was teaching the youth that he wanted the youth to come out of the youth room. We were having a cool time of worship with our own worship band. He wants to come out and listen to Terry Clark play music. Terry Clark, you've heard him play. It's a piano. I mean, for young kids, they're like, boring. Their necks would crack as they'd snap back in exhaustion as their eyes are rolling back in their head. And, and he walks into the youth room. He'd never stepped foot in the youth room in the entire time I was a youth pastor. And he walked in, and I, I saw him leave. And I said, Pastor Don, why are you leaving? He says, we have... The, the, the amazing Terry Clark here, and you think it's more important to have your kids up in the youth room. I said, Pastor Don, I didn't know Terry was here. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and I got all the kids, and I said, get up. We're going down to listen to Terry Clark. Go, Why Terry? I said, be quiet. We're going to go listen to Terry Clark, and you're going to enjoy it. I said, if that man says jump, I say how high. And if I say jump, you say how high. I'm going to take you in to go listen to Terry Clark. And all of us went in to go listen to Terry Clark, and it was boring. But the kids learned something that day. They learned how to honor authority. And you know what happened that day? I think something very significant, Pastor Dave could probably testify to this. We had more youth leaders come out of that group of kids than in any other group we've ever seen when we worked together with those guys. They started to understand that authority is established by God. Most of these kids are in positions of leadership to this day. And what God did as a result of that. It's real simple. The people who are above you do what they say. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. You'll end up in places you've always wanted to be and be given opportunities you never thought you'd have if you just do what you're told to do. And, and that's why the Lord says it'll be, it'll be well with you. You'll live long on the earth. But briefly, I want to cover verse 4 because it's very important. It says, fathers, you fathers, do not provoke. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This idea of provoke, it's, um, it's a heavy one. The idea of provoke means to cause them to be spiritless or dismayed or disheartened, to incite them or to stir them up to a point where you, you, you give them no options. And, and if they're to obey you and they're trapped and they have no process and nothing makes sense as to the orders that you're giving, and you don't take time to explain because the scripture clearly points out that you're to raise them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Let me tell you what training isn't. Training isn't you sitting in your barca lounger watching ESPN while you're barking out orders to your kids. Do as I say, not as I do is not training. 
Flicking the channels on the TV while barking orders saying, don't make me count to three is not training. You don't need to count to three. You know why you count to three? You're lazy. You shouldn't have to count at all. You do this, this is what will happen. Don't go, don't make me count. You know what you're saying? Don't make me get up from my really comfortable chair. You spare the rod, you hate the child, the scripture says. If you give to a child when it cries or a pig when it oinks, you'll end up with a fine pig and a rotten child. You get up. You go do what you've been called to do. You have a job. You have a calling from the Lord. The Bible says the Lord chastens those he loves. He's done that in your life. Do it in theirs. And I want to ask you, when's the last time the Lord took you and spanked you so hard and yelled at you and demeaned you and left you in a cowering mess? Never. Never. You never discipline in anger. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. There's nothing wrong with with a a, a swat. But it's done not, you make me so angry. That's not disciplining according to the Lord. That's awful. That's awful. You discipline in love. This hurts me more than this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It hurts, especially when you're angry and your teeth are gritted and you're yelling. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And when the scripture says, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. To wrath. And when we see in the passage of scripture, when Colossians says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, it's a different word even there. The idea is don't incite them or stir them up. You know, if you, if you give them, if you give them a no-win situation, it's destruction for their lives. They'll do it, but it just kills them inside. Let me tell you another way to provoke your children to wrath. Preach one thing and do another. Say this is what we're to do, but don't do it yourself. That's a wonderful way to provoke your children to wrath. Here's another way to provoke your children to wrath. Just let them do what they want to do. The Dr. Spock method of raising kids. Just let them experience themselves. Just let them run amok. You know, as Prince Edward who said of America when he visited for the first time, he says, I'm amazed at how well the parents obey the children. I think of the time I walked into a home and I came for a visit. I walked into the home. Uh, the, the father realizes his young daughter is watching something inappropriate. And maybe because I was there, he wanted to have her not watch it. I don't know. And his approach to parenting was, sweetie, do you think that's appropriate? Do you really think you should be watching that? And she turned, she said, yes. And he said, well, honey, it, it doesn't seem like it's real good for you. Maybe you want to turn that off. She goes, no. And he did you know, three or four minutes trying to coax her and finally just gave up. And that child had that parent right where that child wanted that parent. And that parent obeyed that child. That's not parenting. That's provoking him to anger because that child's going to grow up and not have a clue on how to operate in life. Children of that age don't know how to process the things that they're seeing. They don't know how to process what they're dealing with. Think about it. Growing up, I can never remember a mass shooting in a movie theater, let alone a school. 
my son, Michael, was when we were on vacation these past weeks and, and the news came in about what had happened uh, in, in Aurora, Colorado. He, 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 I don't know where he heard it or what happened, but as we're driving, he, he asked a question in the middle of, of the lake and posed a question to my wife. Obviously, he'd been cons- considering it and thinking about it for quite some time because in a world where he's growing up and seeing the joy of the Lord, it doesn't register. Dad, my world is frightening right now. Can you help me process this? And so I walk him through it. I remember one night as we had seen uh, a, a, an event in the news of, of a shooting in a neighborhood. And Daniel w- was getting up as I was tucking the boys in. He was locking the windows. I said, son, what are you doing? He says, I heard shots outside. And I said, well, why are you locking the windows? We're surrounded by angels, son. Well, Dad, I, I, just, I just don't want him coming in the house. And I said, let me tell you something, son. Lay down. You're immortal until God's done with you. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And last night as I lay with the boys in the bed, and you know what a sad, sad state of affairs we're in that I have to have a conversation like this with my 13 and 10-year-old son. But I said to him, son, if we were in that movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, I want to tell you what would have happened. What's that, Dad? I would have turned to the two of you, and I would have said, stay down and get out and take care of your brother. I said, and I know that both of you love the Lord, and so do I, and we're, we're going to be in heaven. I don't know if everyone in this theater is saved, but I'm going to go down and stop that guy. And I love you, and I'll see you on the other side. Dad, wouldn't you be afraid? Maybe at the moment, but God will give me the strength. I don't want anyone in that theater to die a Christless death. I will stop him. Does that frighten you? Because it emboldened my children. We're on this earth to protect people. We're on this earth to lead them to Christ. Jesus said, don't fear the first death. Fear the second death, separation from God for all eternity. The boys understood that. I said, son, you don't have to be afraid. Boys, the minute we can conquer fear, that's when the devil has no hold on us. What are we afraid of? And you raise them in the training and the admonition of the Lord to show them that the truths that you declare with your mouth, you live with your life. Now, I would say this to young people as you grow older. And I think this is an issue that continues through life that we struggle with time and time again. How long do we obey our parents? Well, we honor them for life. But I would say, real simply put, when I was a young man, um, my parents weren't believers. And uh, I had backslidden and gotten involved with a young lady. And, and at the time, I thought she was pregnant with what I thought was my child. And I, I was a Christian all on my own, got into a mess. And, and I went to go tell my parents that she was pregnant and that we were going to get married. I walked into their home and I told them. My mom began to scream. My dad was like, Louise, calm down. My dad looked at me with that Navy captain stare and his head shaking, and he just said, Rob, I understand that you've made a mistake. We all make mistakes, but you don't need to ruin your life by getting married. The simple solution to this is that she gets an abortion, and the two of you go back to living your lives. I said, Dad, I, I appreciate your desire to want to work this out for me, but abortion's not an option. It goes against everything I believe in. He looked at me, and he said, well... 
Look where your beliefs have gotten you so far, son. There's nothing like being convicted by a pagan. And I say that in all respect to my dad. He's a believer now. But, but the idea was he was right in the sense that it wasn't my beliefs that got me into that mess. It was my lack of obeying those beliefs that got me into that mess. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I can't follow up one mistake with another. He said, let me make it clear for you, son. You marry that woman, you'll never step foot in this house again. Now they owned a home in Coronado, house I born, was, grew up in, not born, but grew up in. Coronado. <laughs> I was living in Fresno. Who wants to lose Coronado? And truth be told, I, I didn't really know if this marriage would work. But I didn't want that baby to grow up without dad. I was shaking. First time in my life, I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I love you. Mom, I love you and I'm going to miss you both. And I left. They didn't call me. They didn't give me time of day. Ended up not being my baby. It ended up being the, well, my college pastor's baby, which is really funny in a tragic way. He was married and had three kids. You want to talk about a shake to your foundation. But you know what? I learned something early on. God never let me down. Man did. I let God down. I let my parents down. But making that decision, that stand, that was the one pinnacle in my mother's life that brought her to the Lord. She had confessed to having had two abortions prior to that and gave her heart to Christ. That conviction caused her to reexamine her own life and come to the Lord. Finally, when the relationship was dissolved as a result of me being lied to and all the other things and, and um, getting reconnected with an old friend from years before, uh, Michelle Coletti, Metaris Coletti, and, and then realizing this is the one I was always supposed to marry. And we got engaged and I called my mom and she was blown away and, and I, the Lord gave me what I never deserved. Even though I tried and attempted my best to screw up and obtain something all on my own, the Lord was merciful. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Right? He gave me a wife that I could have never have imagined in a thousand lifetimes of great blessing. I remember another time where I wanted to go into the ministry, leave my lucrative job at Unilever, Cheeseboro Ponds. Actually, at the time, I was working for A.C. Nielsen. And uh, give up a company car and bonuses and a really great salary to move from Southern California back to Fresno, which is the armpit of California. I could think of other things to say, but anyway. And um, when I told my dad I was going into the ministry, it was $800 a month. They pay for half my health care. My dad said, you're a fool. He said, don't do it. And he was talking to me on a, one of those old cell phones that looked like a Korean war radio. <laughs> and it went dead in Gold Springs, Colorado, and I didn't hear the rest of it. And I went off and gave up my job and went into the ministry. My dad said, you're, you're going to starve on your own. You're going to implode on your own. We won't be here to help you. Sure enough, he didn't send us a dime. But you know what? That was the cave that the Lord put me in with all the men behind me to fashion me to be who he always wanted me to be. It was that time where the scripture says a man will leave his mother and father and be cleaved to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. My wife and I were unified in the calling and we did it together. I honored my father. I listened to him. But the best way to honor my father is to honor the Lord. And I did. And God blessed it. There are going to be those seasons in life where you're going to need to make those decisions. I, I want to share briefly, and I'll close with this. Uh, there comes a time in every child's life when he or she crosses a threshold into adulthood. And pay attention, parents, because we can be pretty heavy-handed with our adult children. 
in some ways, this moment is culturally, culturally defined. In, in, in the Jewish religion, it was 13 years of age. In America, it's 18, probably when you get registered to vote. Where this dis- decisive demarcation line occurs differs with every culture or every society. But once this goal is attained, the parent-child relationship is supposed to change in some basic ways. In practical terms, this means you'll be transitioning into a position of self-responsibility in which you become accountable to a higher authority, the authority of God, the way you trained your kids to go. In his eyes and under his jurisdiction, you'll be separate and self-determining entity. Instead, you'll choose to act on the basis of the wisdom they have instilled in you over the years and out of an awareness of your own personal responsibility towards your creator. I like what one author puts. He says, honor implies choosing to give respect and care to another person, not grudgingly, but from a principle of love out of a genuine desire to do what's right in the sight of God. True honor is placing the highest value on our loved ones, regardless of whether we agree with them or not. It also means giving them the benefit of the doubt whenever possible. There's going to be a time in the life of your children where they're going to make decisions you don't like. I would say if they're out of your house living on their own and paying their own bills, you tell them what you think is important to do, and you be emphatic about it. But don't provoke them to wrath or anger where they have no option. I'll tell you what. Even if that girl wasn't pregnant, I would have married her to spite my parents. I had no option. They wouldn't even consider communicating with me. I was, I was a 12-year-old in their presence. If you want to demand and be harsh and dictatorial, you'll lose them. And I, I would just say, be very cautious and ask the Lord for wisdom in that regard. How do you honor your parents when they're older and you're in adulthood? I would just say, act like a grown-up. The ultimate goal of parenting is to raise adults who aren't dependent on their parents anymore, but who rely on God for strength and provision. The best compliment you can give to your parents is to be responsible, a godly young adult. Listen to their advice. You don't always have to take it, but listen to it. Respect it. Invoke them in your life. You honor your parents by continuing to communicate with them and spend time with them. I, you know My dad doesn't share anything with me when I go down to visit him in the Alzheimer's home. But I go to visit him because it's important. And do you know that every time I've ever gone, he's always taught me something? Even though he can't speak, he probably doesn't have any idea I'm there. Be ready to care for them. Be prepared to take care of them, much like they took care of you. That's a tragedy in our culture. We don't do that with our our parents anymore. All four of the siblings, all four of my children's children's parents, all of us, take care of my parents. I'll take care of my dad. My mom passed away two years ago this month. We love on him. We care for him. My dad has two visitors a day. And the picture is that what we do, we do in love. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. And I would think that if we applied some of these truths, especially as children, even today, our society wouldn't be as much of a mess as it is today. I want to have two students come and share their testimonies. And uh, I want to share with you how this came about because it'll transition to our time of communion. It's real simple. These students came to Christ. I haven't heard either of the testimonies, but I would say this. I don't know what their parents are like or if their parents are believers, but I know both of them came to Christ. And when they came to Christ, they came under the authority of a brand new parent, and that's the Lord. And I can tell you this. That having come to Christ, I know that the two of them are both better children than they were prior to knowing the Lord. There's one girl, Melody, who is with us now. She came for Emily's uh, wedding that happens next Saturday. And, and, and Melody lives with two parents who don't know the Lord. 
I watched her come to Christ, or at least watched her grow up, and she's an amazing daughter. Both parents will, will acknowledge and recognize that Christ had an influence in her life, but they still haven't embraced the Lord. I went through that with my parents. But I know that the Lord transforms our lives and makes us better children. And so the transition to communion after these two young people come up and share, these young adults come up and share, the transition is simply this. Every one of you is a child, a child of earthly parents. But read John 1.18, because a picture in John 1.18 is, if you give your heart to the Lord, you've been given the privilege to be a child of, of the Father in heaven, God. And he will make you a child like you've never imagined yourself to be. He'll make you a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better child, a better employee, and a better employer. It was his body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed for the remission of your sins because he loved you while you were yet a sinner. He set the way so that society could be reestablished. This is the efficacious transformation of our community at this table. What Christ has done for you, you do for one another. Give your life away. Submit to one another in the fear of God and watch as our families are healed.